0: This is former NBA referee Mark Wunderlich. Thanks for listening to the Crown
1: Refs podcast. Serve the game. You are listening to the Crown Refs podcast, the audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Thanks for listening to
0: the podcast. This is Nick Sivkovic from Gainesville, Florida. Episode 83 features former 21-year NBA official Mark Wunderlich. Mark officiated 1,200 regular season games from 1990 to 2011, including 88 playoff games. Most notably, Mark worked the 2008 and 2009 NBA Finals alongside the 2008 NBA All-Star Game. In this podcast, we will be focusing on the importance of habits and mechanics, primary and secondary coverage responsibilities, some tips for watching film, and the two most common mistakes that officials make. Be sure to hit us up with any questions or feedback. We hope that you can add a couple of things to your game. Enjoy the podcast and stay well.
1: You know, one thing that's pretty consistent with the officiating industry, at least in my experience, with regards to our process and coming up in a system and moving up through the ranks is... You can't really skip steps. You know, in most cases, you don't go from freshman ball to work in D3. You don't go from JUCO to D1. But you, my friend, have a very interesting success story on how you got your shot. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, there was two things, really. It was in 1987, um, during the basketball season, I had just broken into a high school JV, which I was excited about. I was working a game, a local high school game here, a JV game, which is prior to the varsity game. And uh, after the game, a guy walked in the locker room by the name of Lou Bonder, who was the head of the Atlantic Ten at the time, and he told me he wanted me to go to three Division three colleges the following three Saturdays, and he gave me three college D three college games uh, in front of the varsity referees who were like looking at me like, "Are you kidding me?" and I had no idea the opportunity was offered me at the time, but uh, it got so, the times it kind of got so silly that I showed up at the uh, the college games wearing my high school jacket, so uh, the guy I was working with said, he might want to take that off, so, but that was my first shot, and then that summer, uh, the story changed my life, and the man that changed my life was Joey Crawford. I was... Working a lot of summer rec league, as we all do, men's adult leagues.
1: Before you get into Joey, you went from JV ball to college. You obviously didn't know the rule book. You didn't have uniforms. So how did that, that go for you?
0: Uh, I just basically officiated to the best of my ability and just tried to get, you know, as many plays right as I could. And uh, I was, I've always been a systematic guy. Like, I always... You know, I understood my, the mechanic end of it. I, like you said, I, did, I wasn't fully aware of all the rules. And uh, <clears throat> I think I worked with Bobby Donato's brother in my first game, Jimmy Donato. And he basically helped me through. So I chased the ball in the first half, and I think I refereed a
1: little bit in the second. <laughs> so, but uh, how, it went well. How far did you move up through the college ranks?
0: Well, that's what was funny. I was. Lou had talked to me about attending the Atlantic 10 tryout that summer. But I was working a lot of summer rec league games, uh, men's men leagues throughout the area here in Philadelphia. And uh, there was one league that was called Bailey Park, where they had a lot of big five players, former big five players. And every night the games were like the firemen against the police. I mean, they just big fire. I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry, the big five for the people outside of Philadelphia. Which schools you mean?
0: Uh, Saint Joe's, Villanova, Temple, uh, Penn. Um, and LaSalle. And what I was during the summer, they would formulate teams, former players, and they would get together and play in this league. And it was a really good league. And uh, I would go there every Thursday night and get $20 a game, as we used to back then, and, and just go basically go and try and work on my craft and have, you know, grab a little money for formula and diapers for the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the last game was championship game. And uh, this guy walked across the creek, and I was getting my stuff off the table. And he said, my name's Joey Crawford. And I said, oh, my God. You know, I was like, looking at him because I had just seen him on TV working the Lakers in the finals. And he said, I've been looking at you <clears throat> through my kitchen window. <laughs> I live right there. We pointed to his house.
1: Good locations.
0: Yeah, he goes, I'm looking at you all summer. And there's, there's something I like. And, you know, you got to lose some weight. You, know, you got to do this. You got to do that. But I called my boss, and I think we're, we're, I'm going to try and get you an invite to Los Angeles. So, uh, as I was trying to gain my breath, you know, and everything, I was just like, uh, you know, oh, okay, you know, okay, and uh, I got home, and then three days later, I got a federal express package from the NBA to attend the uh, NBA summer in of Marymount, and uh, Joey, who I didn't know from, you know, from nobody, I mean, here's a guy uh, I had no connection to no former, prior meeting, um, find some stranger on a playground in the middle of June, and it changes the man's life in about five seconds. So, I mean, I love that man. So, uh, people, people don't realize uh, the things he's done for this craft and the things he's done for the people inside this craft. And, you know, he, he granted me the opportunity to go, and, and, and three years later, after three years in the CBA, I was hired into the NBA.
1: It's funny, we always hear, uh, make sure you work 100% no matter where you are, because somebody's always watching. This is a clear case of that really manifesting.
0: Yeah, I think it it applies and covers a lot to your listeners, right? Because you guys get up and you grind and you grit and you get in the car, you drive two hours to work a game, and, and you get there and you drive home and you feel like, okay, I worked the game and everything, but... You never really know. And I'll just, if I can elaborate a little bit, I'll just give you an example. Two Saturdays ago when we still were attending games, I took a day off. It was a Saturday. And uh, I ran down to the Villanova game at noon, watched Nova Providence. Then I shot over to the Chorus Center in Temple and watched the high school district playoff game. And then at 5.30, I was able to make an Archdiocese CYO championship game. Nice. So I I ended up watching nine referees, and I spent the entire day just watching their eyes. And, uh, you know, where they were looking, what they were looking at. and It was interesting for me to see, you know, to see the different levels. And, you know, I was thoroughly impressed with the Archdiocese CIO guys. I mean, there were three young kids that were just working the system and working together and a lot of teamwork and trust, and it, it just caught my eyes how, how many people in this, you know, in this profession, are trying to get better every day? And it was it was exciting for me. And my, I got home. My wife said, "What did you do today?" I said, "I went to three basketball games." She kind of looked at me like I'd lost my mind, but I really enjoyed that day. It
1: was it was eye-opening. Because you're still working on your craft to this day. So you went to trial for the yeah. NBA. Did you get in right away? Take me through that process.
0: No, my first year, I worked uh, twelve games in the CBA. And then the following two years, I worked sixty and sixty-five.
1: From J uh, some JV to the CBA.
0: Yes, and during that first year, Lou Bonder called me um, to see if I, you know, at the time, I don't think colleges liked the fact that you were working NBA. I mean, they wanted you to make kind of a decision. And once I got a taste, of going to the summer league out in Los Angeles, and watching the training I was getting by uh, Joey and Hubert Evans and E.T. Rush. I kind of, it was like my chocolate. I, I kind of got addicted. I mean, I, I just i just never uh, had that kind of instruction and that kind of like drilling down to how this is really done. And I just wanted more and more and more and, and it, it became a, a kind of an addiction for me.
1: Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by Neat Tucks, the best way to keep your shirt or uniform tucked. If you're looking for that clean and professional look on the court, this is the best product for that. Go to NeatTucks.com and order yours today. Crown Refs and Neat Tucks, serving the game. Hmm. So you worked in the league 21 years. Just give me some of the um, memories that kind of stand out the most to this day.
0: Uh, well, I'm not a big storytelling guy, but um, I guess work in the All Star Game, being a crew chief in the All Star Game in 2008 was big. Uh, working my first final in 2008 with Bennett and Joey, uh, two of my dear friends and both my you know big uh, true mentors of mine, Bennett Salvatore and Joey, and being able to work uh, Lakers Boston Game Three with them was. Uh, you know, it was really not only emotional, but it was like when you get hired in the league, you're trying to get hired not to just be a referee in this league. You're trying to be a, you know, one of the best referees in the league. And when I got to that point and was to sign that game, you realize you, you, you reached a goal. And, and, and that's one of the most memorable things for me as far as um, being able to accomplish that.
1: Unfortunately, the NBA just lost an icon, an absolute legend, a person that was really dear to, to to our hearts and Kobe Bryant. Someone that you got to officiate many times over the years, including those NBA Finals. I know you have a pretty funny story. Tell us about the time you teed up the Black Mamba.
0: What happened was it was my first first final, and I could tell it was it was bigger than I thought because I I couldn't get into the captains' circle at the beginning of the game. There so many cameras and everything, so I thought, wow. So as the game started, um, I was a crew chief through the first two, three rounds. And then in the finals, I was the umpire because Joey, of course, or Bennett were a crew chief of referee. And as the game started, I could feel that uh, um, every play that was debated was going to be debated with me. And um, from Paul Pierce to Kevin Garnett to Kobe, everybody was coming at me and Joey and Bennett were making calls and, and. They were like, you know, they would just come to me, come to me, come to me. So finally, about the six-minute mark, I realized that I was going to have to spend 48 minutes of this pure torture. So Kobe went to the basket. He gets stripped pretty good. I got I got to it early. I saw the ball. I saw the hand on the ball. I saw it go down. Boston was on a fast break. Kobe starts screaming at me, and I said, this, just stay right here. Don't go nowhere. I'll be, I'll be right back. But my emotions took over, and I turned... And I hit him with a technical foul before Boston could score. I should have waited for Boston to finish the play, but I was, you know, wanting to get it off the list so much, <laughs> you know. So uh, and uh, so the play ended, and now there was a timeout. And I'm looking down at Bennett and Joey, and, and uh, I walked down to him, and Joey looked right at me. He says, "You're not as dumb as you look," <laughs> because I kind of, from that point forward, I was able just to referee, and everything kind of calmed down. So it was, it was, it was kind of handed to me, you know, a situation where I was able to address and alleviate some problems that were developing for me. But first. as all referees go, you know, you think you think you arrived and all of a sudden, five minutes in the game, you realize you have it. So it's like, it's interesting for all of us. It was a good message for all of us.
1: How did Kobe respond to that? Did he leave you alone the rest of the game?
0: Yeah, he just played. He was just a terrific. You know, he just played. And it uh, it was, it was, it was, it was a memory I'll never forget. And, uh, uh being, and like I said, being there with Joey and Ben, it made it really special.
1: I know you wind up working uh, in the NBA finals. Just take me through those first couple years. How would you kind of rate your performance in the league?
0: Um, I really leaned on the veterans. So, uh, a lot of, I had a lot of great mentors and, um, Joey and, and Eddie T rush and Jack Madden and, um, Steve Javi is a young crew chief. Danny Curlford is a young crew chief, and I, <clears throat> I just tried to bleed out of them everything they could give me, and um, I was pretty primary focused. Uh, didn't stray much. Uh, Try to stay in my lane. Uh, I tried to get real good with the rules um, because I felt that I could always be an asset to the crew if I had uh, real good rule knowledge. Well, with some of the veteran people who might not have had as good a rule knowledge, so. That way I brought something to the, to, to the game every night, something they could rely on as my play calling
1: was improving. Mm-hmm. What are some of the main things that really stand out that, that Joey was able to give you and other veterans that kind of guided you along?
0: Well, you know, I can still remember um, being in his living room and I was 27, 28 years old, and him, him pausing the tape in the living room. I drive to the basket and screaming at me. Who do you got? Who are you refereeing? Who are you looking at? And uh, that still holds true to today. And it was uh, quite amazing that you know all the things that were learned inside his living room back in 1989, 90, uh, uh, we're teaching today. So it's it's maybe with some different verbiage, but it's still the same uh, principles of you know get to people early see him longer sort of play slower and uh you know we we i would say early in my career we wore the pause button out on his vcr i mean i think that we took the print off it because he was he would he would always be willing to watch tape with me and the big thing was he was always really honest with me to the point where i would leave his living room wanting to punch him and uh I realized that he was he was telling me the truth. And uh, that that would really made a difference in my career, I believe.
1: Just like you and, and many others, you're a referee lifer. And now you're in a position to give back to the game at the highest level. Talk to me your, about your role as VP of referee operations in the NBA.
0: So basically, um, I, I, I helped run the, with Monty, Joey Bennett, Ef rush, e, and uh, Bernie, we we oversee their officials, so we have a lot to do with the mechanical structure. How you know how the mechanics operate? Uh, we have groups that we oversee. I'm also involved in different streams, other streams. Um, I work closely with Monty as far as plays that are trending, um, um, mechanics that we can change uh, to to help know, improve our performance because as we all know, in the last ten years the game has changed from threes, frees and layups, right? So you have a lot of three a lot of volume, three point shot attempts, you have free throws, and then you have layups. And the mid lay mid range game has kinda of left us. So our, our mechanical structure kinda of changed to more of a you know, a trail being more attached to the sideline, getting more width, you know, and um, the, the lead you know, uh, uh, outside ball, you know, trying to work outside in, and then the slide of free-throw line extended. So we work hard on starting everybody at dependable positions. We work hard on the mechanics. And then from the mechanics, we build habits because what we do uh, as a group uh, for the developmental development of referees is we believe that mechanics and habits can create, like, a consistency and a calibration that will allow fairness in a game. Mm. So that that's our that's our goal is to create a calibration and a consistency on end, which provokes fairness, because when it comes to officiating, that's what it's all about.
1: I love that. That's a great line. Let's get a little technical uh, for all the ref nerds out there. On the most recent podcast I did with Al Batista, we talked about um, order and sequencing to start a possession and categorizing different play types and kind of having those guidelines to follow, which then helps us be more prepared for those plays. So what else could you add on top of that?
0: So uh, mechanically, we, 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 have a theme. We go in each night. We, we want to referee the three-point line and we want to own the paint with six eyes. Okay. So by owning the three-point line is you have to get, you have to be honest. I've heard you on your other podcast. You have to see and read the next play on the perimeter. So you have to locate your shooters because we want you you know, we like we like to see you do stationary sequencing. Okay, stationary sequencing is you're not moving to a spot as the guy is taking a shot. You're already in a spot because you read the shooter. You step down and you're there on a pass. So stationary sequencing would be uh, you're in the trail. You have a shooter in your primary. You read the shooter. You step down to make sure you see the next pass coming. You're stationary. Then you go through your sequence. So. One of the main sequencing we do with all three-point shots is, since the beginning of time, screeners screen for shooters. Okay, So we have to always find our screening action first, and we have to find and make sure the guy's behind the three-point line, and then we go to point of contact. So the screening action would be one, I mean the sequencing action would be one, two, three. You would go screen, line, defender. Screen, line, defender. And it's imperative that you're stationary. Because if you get there stationary, you're not, you know, diving down. You're like, you don't see NBA referees diving down their shooters anymore.
1: What do you mean, in what mean by diving down?
0: Like being stacked behind them and going to catch, trying to get underneath to see if they're behind the three-point line. We used to see a lot of that, uh, where they would try and dive down, you know, to see if they're behind, and they'd be missing all the screening action in front of them. We try and do our work early now, okay, by by identifying our shooters, by making pre-adjusted, pre-adjustments on the perimeter, you know, as far as position adjustments. So we're there on the catch. We want to be there on the catch. And so we want to have stationary sequence. So I can stand there on the catch, get to my screening action, get to the line, and get to the point of contact. It's a lot slower. So what happens is it allows you to see the play longer. Now, if you I'm a big guy, and I believe in this. It's it's okay to stand in the right spot. everybody standing in the right spot. Everybody's looking in the right spot. But you have to look at the plays in the right order. If you're out of order, you'll miss the play. So let's just go over uh, three-point shots with screen line defender. And we went to the one, two, three sequence, right? One is screening, two is line, three is point of contact. If you go line one, screener, Two, the screening action has already occurred. So you have to be in the right order. I know it sounds simplistic, but it's not. When I go to games, the only thing I do is watch referees' eyes. And I can tell tell you after a game if they're in the right order throughout the game. Hmm. I can watch their eyes and see if they're watching plays in the right order. So when something happens and a play is missed, I can tell that they didn't see the play. Not that they saw the play, they didn't call it. They were in out of order. They missed the play, and they didn't call. There's a big difference, and we have to get sequentially, you know, sound as far as jump shots. We, 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 we go screen line defender. Then when the jump shot is taken, we go to our second sequence, and we take the shooter up. We take the shooter down, and then we go to rebound. Up, down, down rebound. Up, down, rebound. So let's take that sequence out of order. You go up, and then you go to rebound, and the guy lands on a guy's foot. You don't know what happens.
1: Yeah.
0: So you have to take it one, two, three. One, two, three. So on one play, on a volume three shot, you have two stationary sequence actions. You have screen line defender, okay. up, down, rebound. Okay. On every possession, every time you officiate it. That's, that's the way we're taught, because that provokes consistency. Which will you know, improve our calibration provoke fairness.
1: Those are great mental cues, kind of as a play starts, you know, it's like a real proactive approach. It's almost we're seeing the game a couple seconds ahead. You know, they say don't anticipate the foul, but anticipate the play. So that's kind of what you mean by that.
0: Yes. And and the key to it the key to it is to get to your spots, right? You start in a dependable spot trail leader slot or center, center, right? Trail leader center. You're starting to position, and then from that spot you you position just based on open and closed looks, right? You never allow players to dictate your angle. You never say settle for the C look. You work hard for the A look, right? And you know a lot of it has to do, you know, when you when you get into that mode of really working hard mechanically, your handoffs are quicker like uh, when you, you, the lead accepts the ball from the trail, you work off each other's eyes. Okay. We have an unwritten, referees have an unwritten language. We don't talk to each other for 48 minutes or 40 minutes, but we do. We talk to each other through our eyes and it's, when it's done right, it's like poetry, mm. right? It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, that fills my heart when I see it done right. Um, and what happens is that unwritten language, that, that unspoken language can be effective if everybody does it quickly and efficiently. So if me and you are having a handoff from trail to lead, if, if I stay on the ball too long, right, because you're you're accepting ball, I want to get right off. As soon as I read your eyes on ball, I want to get off to my next primary because freedom of movement. I want to see the first fail. Maybe if I stay on the ball too long, I'll see the push off and not the hole. So I watch that a lot when I go to games, too. I watch the ability of referees to give up the ball and work with a lot of teamwork and trust with each other, to be able to say, he has it, I'm off, I'm in my primary. And then that's all done by understanding where the lines are on the floor, right? Because most of our, our, our you know, ball acceptance is based on lines on the floor in the NBA. The free-throw line down, the lead will accept outside lane line the slot will accept so we, you need to know the lines on the floor and when you need to accept ball that's I'm, I'm, i think that all works hand in hand uh with with the habits that we talked about with the sequencing and the mechanics that we need to know
1: i know that last week when we spoke on the phone you were mentioning a lot of great um points about primary and secondary court coverage could you talk about that again
0: Yes, um, I like. I, 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 we like our officials to remain primary focus with secondary awareness. Okay. Now, secondary awareness means this: if you if you're going to th- go out of your primary, um, you have to throw a strike. All right, because we did analysis, and our most effective secondary area caller is still last to our primary caller. Okay. So that's a pretty accurate stat. So our most efficient secondary core is our worst primary core. Hmm. So we want you to stay primary focused, and when you go out, we want you to throw a strike. Okay, that's for a few reasons. Okay, because when I came in, um, you know, with Billy and Billy Oaks and Joey and Bennett and Bobby Delaney and all those people I work with, Steve, they allowed me to referee. All right, they allowed me to grow. OK, so when there plays at a the basket, there wasn't a lot of unnecessary double whistles and triple whistles um, that they would allow me an opportunity to blow the whistle. And if I didn't get it, they would have a quick cadence count behind me mm. to get it. But why, when you do that and you allow your, your partners, especially your, your younger partners, to have the ability to call plays, it grows them faster. Not with just their confidence, but with the participants that are playing the coaches, the players, the GMs, right? Because they see the strong fist by a Jenna Schroeder. She comes, she breaks the pile with strong signals, reports it to the table with with a lot of confidence, and just, you know, without a double whistle, just a single solid whistle, where Scott Foster's looking at the same play, and he knows it's a foul on the trail, and he's allowing Jen to call it to provide her the uppercuts her primary cadence, and if she can't get it, he goes to get it. That's what I love most about our staff, is their ability to, to allow our young people to grow. And I think um, it's overlooked because it's been passed down. Uh, uh, myself, Joey, like I said, Joey Bennett, all those guys did it for me. Monty, Scott Foster, that's how they grew us and Duke Callahan. That's how we grew. They allowed us to referee and we were all able to make the NBA Finals. And I just think it's important as a senior, when you're working as a, as a team, you realize the importance of not only allowing people to grow, but allowing people to referee, especially with inside their primary.
1: Got a question for you about primary versus secondary. This is um, in slot or trail. So we're refereeing that primary defender all the way to the rim, right?
0: Yes. We, whoever you in our, in, in our system, whoever you start with, you take to the basket. Okay. So um, – so if the trail starts with Defender A and he gets beat, and now Defender A is trailing and he's engaged, we stay with him because he may push him, he right. may trip him, he may hit him in the back of the head. So we want to stay engaged with that defender if we start with that defender.
1: Okay, so my question is, how do we avoid that double whistle if, the let's say, the trail is, is refereeing that primary defender, but now it enters... The leads primary, like right in right in front of them, or, okay. or right in the paint, um, is the lead supposed to okay. be aware that the, this is the trails play still?
0: Well, if if, if here's what happens on plays to the basket, there's a difference. If the defender gets beat, right, the trail will stay engaged with backside defender. And what happens when people get beat? Secondary defenders come. Yeah. Right. All right. So, secondary defenders, you need. See, with inside your primary, you have to make decisions, okay? So let's just make a basic one. You're in the slot or in the center. There's post play, and you have the ball in your primary. You have to make a decision with inside your primary. Do you go to the ball and allow the post play to go unwatched? Or if there's no pressure on the ball, do you go down to the post until the lead gets over and then go on ball? And we face those decisions every night. Right, and it's the same thing in the lead. When that defender gets beat, now we have to figure out where the help's coming from. Well, in the NBA, most of the help comes from the weak side. Ninety um, percent of the help comes from the weak side, and usually the help is the tell for the lead is first movement. Whoever moves first is coming. Okay, he's going to be the secondary defender because everybody else is going to remain attached. Uh, because we have in the NBA and in college and in high school, you want to stay with your shooters. So they have one person rotating, you know, to take the. You know, there's there's three, there's three ways to guard the rim, right? Block shots, take charges, or you play through legal contact. As referees, we got to be good at all three.
1: Hmm.
0: We have to be good at block shots. We have to be good at block charge, and we have to be good at them playing through vertical. Okay, so by doing that, we have to get the people early, so we see them longer. So, the play is slower, so we can discern the play. We're not whistleblowers. We're discerners. We discern plays. We just don't blow the whistle on contact. We discern contact. There's a lot of plays that are ugly but not illegal. Okay, so we have to get the people early and just referee the legality of the defender and not the force of the offensive player. So, what happens a lot is in the lead, You now get the secondary defender because strong side defender, you know, most strong side defenders are going to stay attached, right? Because that short corner pass is an easy three. So you don't really have to worry about them. You have to worry about the first movement, and usually that secondary defender is coming from weak side. When you get to him, you're on him. That's your defender. The backside defender is the trail. So whoever commits the foul will take the play. The lead can't see the backside defender. He's close to him, right? And the trail with an engaged matchup, can't get to the secondary help defender. So that's why we referee people in the paint instead of the ball.
1: Understood. Yeah, I was thinking this is kind of a...
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll just add. Now, say that defender stays attached and he stays in front, right? Well, there's going to be no help defender. That's when the lead picks that defender up, too, because there's nobody coming to help Okay. because he's he's been able to stay in front. So now we have four eyes on that defender, and the trail will now lead first shot with a secondary cadence. It's only when players are beat that we have secondary help. We very rarely have secondary help when primary defender stays engaged and attached.
1: What if it's a more obvious foul um, from the backside, from the primary defender, but kind of the lead has still has a good look at it? Who do you want having a whistle there?
0: I, you know, if he sees a foul, I would have no. We like that primary cadence from the trail with a, se- with a secondary cadence from the lead. But if that's a play that's it's obvious, that we don't we have no problem with a double whistle on that of kind of play. Okay. What we what we hate what we hate are the kind of double whistles where there's an obvious train wreck at the basket, one primary defender that the lead has, and here comes the trail on the slide all with a triple whistle, and all, they're all looking at each other, like who's going to take it to the table. And, and, and kind of fighting over the play. We do not want that. We want to allow people with inside their primary to referee to play.
1: Good stuff. You know, you've said a lot of impactful things. One thing that stood out to me uh, off air was you said, be a participant. Be a participant for the game. Could you just go into a little bit more detail on what that means?
0: Yeah. Um, well, when we hire you, we want you to participate. Okay. Um, we don't want people going six for six, seven for seven. We would rather have people, you know, being active with inside their primary, maybe going 12 for 13, right? No matter. And, right, because basically people that go six for six and seven for seven, I refereed the CBA for three years. I could get all seven of those plays in the CBA, okay? I need you to get the five or six I can't get, all right? So when you come on board, you have to participate and you have to add to the crew every day. And that's the kind of people we, we like to hire. We like to hire willing people, people that are willing and, and, and willing to, to participate and have grit and resolve and all the intangibles that, that Monty talks about all the time as far as the real thing, courage, uh, what really makes officials, what, you, know, mm-hmm. you, know, the, 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 you know, that discipline. And, and, and that's what we're looking for every night. Now, it's, hey, listen. When you first come in, you, it, there's there's a lot going on. I mean, it's it's hard, but we ask a lot of we to, you know, lots asked from those that are hired, and that's just the way it has to be. Um, when I, I just want to get back to uh, drives to the basket, okay? Cool. Because this is important. Um, when, you're, when, when you're when you're when you're when you're referring a play to the basket, and I, I've said it twice, getting the people early is important because of the three ways they protect the rim. You, you have to get to the RA, right? The restricted area, right? You have to make sure they're vertical, right? And you have to get to the point of contact a lot. And there's a lot of plays at the basket that, that we have a threshold. I and mean, you talk about a lot in your, your podcast that I've listened to as far as that pain tolerance that you need yeah. on drives to the basket, right? And that pain tolerance is important because at the end of the day, when you really break it down, what what separates a lot of officials is the ability to withstand that pain tolerance, yeah. to just judge the legality of the play and not the ugliness of it. And if I just leave your viewers or your listeners with that thought, that just judge the defender's legality, not the fact that the guy blew up or fell down or whatever he did, just judge the defender's legality. And if you do that by getting to him early, Knowing who's helping, knowing where the help's coming from, seeing the play longer, keeping the air low, low in your belly, and then making a decision, discerning the play, and not be a whistleblower, you'll have a lot more success moving forward. It's
1: funny, so much about this craft is like not being reactionary, not rushing, because it just that's where all the mistakes lie.
0: Well, most of our mistakes come, we have two kind of errors when we blow the whistle. We have closed look hours where people call plays where they have totally closed looks, right? Or we have poor early decisions. And that's the one you're talking yeah. about, Paul, right. where you, you, you make that poor early decision um, and you you just too reactive, too quick, right? You're you're just you didn't discern. You're a whistleblower. You just you didn't discern the play, you just reacted. And we find when we miss plays that those poor early decisions are the ones that that, that lead to most of our incorrect calls. Hmm. And I, I, just to backtrack, I just want to add one thing. Don't ever think that proximity and primary mean the same thing.
1: Talk about Okay?
0: It. So if there's a drive to the basket and the trail is the farthest person away from that backside defender, right, and he pushes him in the back and he's the only one open to that because he started with that defender, he has to call that play. This proximity and primary, do coaches and players think that goes together? But us referees know it doesn't, right? And we know that yep. looks, looks are, looks are created from all, you know, because of the three-man system and the triangle method it was built, what's closed to two should always be open to one, right? So we have to make sure that we don't think that prim, uh, primary and proximity are aligned.
1: So basically if you blow the whistle when you have a closed look, you're pretty much guessing. How do we avoid guessing and really establishing that ultimate sense of certainty.
0: Well, that's that's why you have to, you know, you have to make sure you work for that a look. You have to make sure you're mechanically sound. You have to make sure that you 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 have the discipline, which is the the word that we use most is having the discipline and trust in your teammates. What's closed to you will be open to them okay. if you believe that to be true then you'll withstand that pain tolerance of calling plays with closed locks. All right? And uh, most most ways, I, one of the best ways you can do it when you watch tape um, for your listeners is every time you blow the whistle, p- hit the pause button.
1: Hmm, I like and that. And
0: see, see if you had an open look. So every time you're doing your film, like my 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 you know my pause button on my affinity mode's worn out like Joey's was in his living room in nineteen eighty seven, hmm. but it's you just wear out that pause button. So every time your partners or you blow a whistle, pause it. And say, could he see that button? Boom. Could he see that button? Boom. Could he see that button? And you just do that. And when you do that, you'll learn, you'll see what plays you're calling that you're seeing, and what plays you're calling that you're guessing, because when you guess. I think the laws are average. This seems like we're, we're always wrong. We're never right. I mean, at least I wasn't in my career. And that's, I just really believe early in my career and I was taught early in my career the importance of teamwork and trust.
1: That's great that you said that because a lot of times, well, we're told to watch film and study our film. What we're not told is exactly how to do that. So I'm glad you, you mentioned that 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 pause, pausing of the game and really, you know, looking to see if we have an open look. That's good. I'm going to try that.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of things you can do on tape, like uh, you know, make sure you're 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 getting to stationary sequencing positions. Make sure you're creating open looks by you know by you know basic uh, habits of moving opposite players. If the players moving to the right, you move to the left, right? You know, right? These are basic things when you're watching a film. Are you creating good angles by by having good habits by you know um, by creating open looks by dictating your own angles, or are you settling for the C look? Are you settling for standing behind and being stacked on a jump shot? Are you okay with that? So I, I think there's a lot to be learned by tape. Uh, I think there's three ways to learn. You, you hear it on this podcast, right? Yep. You you see it when you watch your tape. Yep. And then you go out and you do it. So it's hear, see, do, oh, right? And then there, there are three things you have to do. You, you listen to this podcast. You're trying to apply some things. You watch your film. And then you try and adjust things that you want to do better.
1: That's great stuff. Anything else you want to say about um, tips for watching film? Be better game reviewers.
0: No, just to be honest, um, you know, you have to, especially find somebody a mentor you can rely on. You know, somebody that you can talk to the, uh, that bridge will handle any load. Where you can be totally honest and and talk about things that they need to do improve or you need to do improve. Uh, because you're if if you're and I've been in those locker rooms where you know, early in my uh, before I got into the NBA where you walk in and the game was a disaster, and everybody's going, "Wow, we were, we were, we really worked good tonight. We were really good tonight." And everybody's patting each other on the back, and it was a total train wreck out there. So, I think I think <laughs> we have to we, we as referees have to be honest with each other. And it's hard, man. That that stuff's hard. But you know what? You're not going to grow unless people are honest with you, and, and it's important to um, to be honest with each other
1: so funny, like, when I come home from a game or somebody asks me how my game went, you know, I'm always like, yeah, it went well, pending film review, because, you know, what we see and feel that night on the court, a lot of times, it just looks a lot different when you're watching it on your couch, you know? You gotta- it sure does, but you know what? Tape takes
0: all the emotion out, right, Paul? Mm-hmm. I mean, all the emotion that the you field. felt on the floor, Yeah. all the emotion that you felt on the floor is no longer in the tape, True. right? It's just the tape, and and that's you know that's where the rubber hits the road, right? So it's like all the emotion that you felt out there, and all that anxiety that you were going through out there for that, you know, forty minutes or that uh, thirty-six minutes, whatever, how thirty-two minutes, how long you refereed. That's out when you put the film in. That's out, all the emotions out. That's when you can be honest with yourself. Where you don't want to be judgmental is on the floor with your partners. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be judging your partner plays on the floor. You judge partner plays in the locker room or in the tape session back at your house later. All right, where we get in trouble as officials is, like you were talking about secondary area calls, you have a play to the basket. You have a good, you've been on, you, you get, your eyes get the defender early. You see the play long. You see him jump. You know he's vertical. There's a lot of contact. You have the pain tolerance to withstand that moment. You've done everything right. And now here comes the whistle from the trail, because his judgment is a little bit better than yours. All right, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. That's the stuff. To me, when I go to games, um, frustrates me, mm. and uh, I, I, you know, and, and 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 frustrates our staff because we have to have the ability. He has saw that defender so much longer than the trail, right? And uh, he just, you just have to have the ability to. Trust each other. And then on film, you, you watch the play, you know, you go in the locker and you watch the play, and the guy goes, C, 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 C. He goes, runs it back. C, 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 C. No, I don't see. C, C, C. No, I don't see. Well, if he has to run it back three or four exactly. times, he's wrong.
1: Yeah. Anytime, on any play, travels, any fouls that you have to continuously bring back and slow down, you're just trying to look for, you know, ways that you got it right.
0: I, I totally agree. This, I, I just want to add one more thing to drive us to the basket, if we could, yeah. for your listeners. Um, when you start with that defender, okay, and this is something we're working really hard on in the NBA right now. Um, when you start with your defender, and that defender beats... ...to defender, and not stop in the middle with the offensive player. So we call it lifting our eyes. So when... If you had started with that defender, he gets beat, right? Don't watch the guy dribble twice and then go to the next defender. Lift your eyes over top of that offensive player and go defender to defender. Train your eyes to do that, and you'll see how much quicker you get to that defender. And you can have a secondary cadence if the lead misses the play by getting to him earlier, right? So when you watch your film, you can train your eyes and back to the film work. By doing that, somebody beats somebody, Train your eyes, go defender, defender, on film. Defender, defender, on film. And don't stop in the middle. And then go back and go defender, offensive player, defender. And see how much slower you are to that defender. So we call it lifting our eyes. And it's something that, it's it's really hard, but it's really effective if you can do it right. Probably the person that does it best on our staff currently is is Scott Foster. Um, I watch his eyes. He never stops at go. He goes defender to defender, and he's there early. He has really quick, lightning fast eyes, and and that what makes him an effective and efficient play caller.
1: You know, Mark. Thirty years from now, we're going to be refing with contacts in our eyes, and um, film reviewers are going to be able to track where your eyes are going as a way to break down, you know, your your performance. Just to give you a little heads up. But
0: it's kind of wrecked the game for me. I can't watch the game anymore. Like, I went to this Providence Nova game, and I went to this high school varsity game, and I I can't even watch the game. My my wife asked me who won. I didn't even know Villanova won. I mean, it was like I was so locked into the three people that are working and where they're looking and where they're looking. And, you know, and I'm just not being critical, but in my own mind, I'm saying to myself, you know, these are things. You know, just just why as a referee now, I, I think it's wrecked the game for us because we can't watch the players. We can only watch, and you know what? You try and pick up something. You try and gain something. You try and learn something because one thing about uh, everybody in our management team, um, we'll steal anything we can to make us better. We have no pride. We will take anything we can off of anybody that will make us better. All right, and. And just because our whole goal is to make the staff better, and with that said, we can't have anything any self serving ideas. Everything has to be about improving that staff, and and that's why I love what you're doing here. You're selfless in this regard in this podcast, because your whole goal is improving the refereeing, referee officiating in, in basketball. And yeah. I, I have to, I admire you for that, buddy. Well, I, I mean, that's that. that's some good stuff.
1: I appreciate that. Well, I've been real driven, you know, personally to try to achieve my goals and I kind of picked up um, the idea to try to bring as many people with me as possible. So that's kind of how it's manifested right now through social media and through podcasts and, and just through the collaboration and sharing of ideas and just putting it out there because we all have our phones on us now and we all have the internet. So we got to take advantage of the opportunity of all this information that, that's constantly being transferred. That's what we're trying to
0: do here. Um, if I could go over one more sequencing thought, okay. So traveling ones. has become traveling, right? Yeah. become a big part of our game, right? Um, because what happens is we we, we miss travels on a perimeter that lead to fouls at the basket, right? That's hmm. the unintended consequence, yeah. right? We miss a travel, that beats the defender, and then we put a foul on the, their best player at the basket. So. When we started sequencing when I came in the league, we always watched the defender. Well four years ago we changed that. On every catch in the front court we train our referees to go feet pivot and when the offensive player releases the ball, we go to defend. So it's feet, pivot, release. Feet pivot release. Because the reason not that is there's no there's no longer any hand checking. The defender can't put his hands on him anyway. There's very rarely a foul prior to dribble. How many fouls have you called prior to dribble the last year?
1: Try to use my voice. Try to use my voice.
0: Not many. Yeah. Yeah, not many. Sure. Right? So, but how many travels have we missed prior to dribble? Not
1: right. Me personally, because we've been out of
0: order. We've been out of order. So that's one thing we're really working hard on as staff is we change our sequencing to go feet, find the pivot, then find the pivot, and on release, sequencearize the defender. So it's feet, pivot, defender. Feet, pivot, defender. And as, as you can tell, it kinda has like a three step cadence to everything. One, two, three. One, two, three. And I know it sounds boring. It doesn't. But if you can do it doesn't if you sound can boring. do the, if you can do this on every possession where you can lock your disciplines in. Like I am always I'll tell you the story I, I my first time I went into the sequencing at camp. Um, I was doing it with my I was snapping my fingers One two, three. One, two, three. and I was in front of the room and I went to lunch that day and I walked in this Mexican restaurant there was eight NBA referees at a table and I walked by them I heard them
1: going
0: <laughs> snapping their fingers as I walked by and I started laughing and I, I realized that I won the teaching moment you know what I mean? I won my teaching moment because whatever I said up there that stuck and I think that if you can apply these disciplines and get to the stationary sequencing areas and do it on every possession of every quarter of every game of every season, you'll be a much more effective play caller.
1: These three-step cues are great. Do you have any other kind of play types where we can apply a three-step cue, anything that we left out?
0: Just, no, just, we we just basically, when we, 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 our mechanics are based on, you know, systematic as far as player responsibility on plays in the basket. Um, The the perimeter stuff is all basically mechanically based as far as position adjusted early. But no, we just, we, right now we have three cadences. For those three cadences we use throughout the game, um, if you watch an NBA referee, you'll see his head go up, you'll see his head go down. And the important thing with that on a jump shot is, our two partners now have to realize that that referee is taking that player to the floor, right? Yeah. So they have to get big and see the rebounding until that your partner can get there to get to his responsibility. So if the lead is on a jump shot in the corner, up, down, then go to rebound, our trail and our, our center have to be on rebounding coverage early to assist our lead, who is doing his job by taking the play to the floor. And then they have to do their job with teamwork and trust to get to our rebounding matchups until he can get there. This is It all goes back to the same theme, and that is teamwork and trust, right? Yeah. Just doing it together, doing it collectively, because that's how you're judged. This is not a competition out there where three people work. Nope. It's basically three people trying to get as many plays right as you can,
1: right? Collectively. Let's touch on communication for a minute. It's the aspect of the game, which I believe... Is the most challenging one for a lot of officials, especially the the younger or less experienced ones. Um, it can get real difficult. What's kind of your philosophy on the best way to respond?
0: Okay, so we I, I really believe that when you talk to coaches, you have to you you know you have to use you know rules uh, for your explanations. They have to be you have to articulate your answers. So you know you have a play where a guy knocked to the floor and you go to the coach and coach, what happened? He said, well, he got knocked to the floor. Okay, well, what, what's that mean? Well, no, Nothing. the better answer would be, he stepped into his path, he didn't allow him a chance to stop and change direction, his contact was illegal and knocked him to the floor. Let's drive to the basket. Not, you know, what happened to He hit him. No, he jumped. He went A to B into space and made illegal contact. When you when you articulate what you see, it's pretty hard for a coach to deflect or come back with a, a response. It's where we don't do a good job um, articulating in front of coaches by rule. Yes, of what we saw, yeah. and I think that's a, the most effective way. And and also the big thing is be authentic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Be real. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't put on this. Use man's face over there and try, you're trying to sell somebody a car, okay? Be authentic, be yourself, and be honest, okay? Um, and I think that's the most effective way to, to gain the respect of not only the coaches, but the players and all the participants.
1: I like that when you were talking about giving them explanations, you say be rule-based, but right after that you said articulate, and that's where the science... Meets the art by you saying be rule based. We don't want to sound robotic. We don't want to sound like we're giving them definitions, like we're like a bookworm that can't you know articulate their words. Um, so you gotta find that blend. And you said being authentic, you know, that's just a great approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, being authentic is the real key, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's you know, and 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 not only authentic with participants, but authentic with your partners later, authentic with your supervisors. You know, I mean? Being honest and then and, and I think I think that's what we sometimes referees were trying to uh, put on his face I think we should yeah. just be who we are You're right uh,
1: yeah I mean I put on that face for for a long time till I got comfortable enough to just kind of really be myself out there and it definitely makes a difference
0: and that's and that's when you hit a different gear yeah that's what that's when you became different and you became more free yeah. right you yeah. became more proud of yourself right I, I think, think that's so. that has a lot to do with that. I mean, I listen. I deal with a lot of referees from you know we go to you know, during um, all the all the uh, grassroots camps and you know the elite camps and the process of getting to the NBA. And I meet a lot of young aspiring people, and the first thing I I look at is are they authentic? I mean, are they you know? And that's that's important to me because. You're looking at a kid that grew up in uh, outside Philadelphia that was discovered on a blacktop in the middle of June, okay? And asked to go to an NCAA tryout camp. I know where I came from. Yeah. right? I know who yeah. I am. Okay? Yeah. I was granted an opportunity, okay? And I, I, I'm not going to say that you know I, I went to the eight college camps and I was the best college referee there. That's not the case. I mean, I was you know, I was found out by a guy that saw me out of his kitchen window eating dinner. And so it's, so it's, and that's who I am. I don't hide from that. I don't hide from that because that's, but I've been able to, you know, I've always loved this profession. I think it's, 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 it's something that people don't realize the amount of work and effort it takes to be a good referee. I mean, the tapes, the amount of tape you have to watch, the games you have to work. I mean, I, I can just remember working six rec league games a week, right? Yep. Six rec you know, going out every night, just work, working.
1: So you had two people early in your career kind of pull you through, really give you an opportunity. Have you had an opportunity to return that favor to a younger official?
0: I have. I have. Um, I, I, I saw some people work that I, you know, I won't mention names, but I, I have four names, that, you know, I. Uh, I'm kind of a junkie. I go to a lot of high school games and just go to a arena. and I and I and I'll get names and I'll forward them on to our, our scouting department. You
1: know, and
0: they, you know, to you know, Big Al the Batista, the Ray Man. <laughs> the Rain Man. On, you, you give him a name, and he's already got the name, and he can tell you, you know, the guy's shoe size by the time you're done talking to him. But uh, I'm hoping to catch him eventually on a name he doesn't have. But um, I, you know, I. Hey, listen. You get up every morning, and you love officiating. You go to work. You have a game at night. You're excited about working. I, I think I think when you go there, just go there with the with, with mindset that somebody might be there watching. You. And work as hard, like you said in the beginning of the broadcast. work as hard as you can. And you will be identified. If you have talent, you will be identified. We will not miss you because guys like you know, Paul and JB and we're look under every rock to find the best referees and uh, I'm, I'm just I can guarantee you that they will find you
1: I really appreciate having you on Mark um, you, I just I'm happy to give you this platform because I know such a great teacher that you are your name has been name dropped on this podcast by a lot of other referees always you know, in the sense that they were looking up to you and they've learned a lot from you. So I just, you know, thanks a lot for taking the time out of your day for this.
0: Hey, I appreciate you having me, man. I, you know, it's, it's, if somebody can be home today and get some incrementally better, but we, we just talked about it for an hour, and we both want our teaching moment, right? Definitely.
1: Anything else you want to elaborate no, that's, on? To all you?
0: No, no. Good luck with everything, right? You be, and everybody be, please be, be safe out there.
1: Thank you for listening to the crown refs podcast, serve the game.